Michael Vonnen. Welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek, and in this video, I want to continue what I've kind of started in the last two videos where I've talked about kind of my general approach to watching Peter Jackson's movie trilogy and then my five favorite scenes from the trilogy. In this video, I want to talk about the five what I think are the best examples of near misses in Peter Jackson's movie trilogy. So the scenes where he did a pretty good job, but if he had actually stuck to the original version written by Tolkien, it actually would have been a lot better. Um, and in the next video, I'm going to kind of round out this kind of mini-series with the worst scenes that Peter Jackson did that he just either totally added and did, you know, contrary to the book or just horrible, that sort of thing. But for now, I just want to focus on five scenes where, you know, the scenes are not that bad in and of themselves, but it's like you had perfect material sitting right in front of you. Why didn't you use it? With that said, let's get going. So as I did in my video about the five best scenes that uh, Peter Jackson put in his movies, this one I'm also going to go in chronological order rather than uh, kind of a hierarchy of best to worst or whatever. So the first one I want to talk about is when the hobbits meet Aragorn in The Prancing Pony. Fellowship of the Ring is... There's a lot of stuff that gets changed in The Fellowship of the Ring because... The Fellowship is actually the longest book, whereas it's the shortest movie, and they kind of flipped it around. In terms of the movies, they put most material in Return of the King, whereas that's actually the shortest of the three books, if you don't count the appendices, which aren't part of the main story. So a lot of things in The Fellowship get truncated and, and kind of cut down, and there's entire chapters left out of The Fellowship of the Ring as well in the movie. So... And it just so happens that one of the ways that this gets exhibited is the way that Aragorn comes along and joins the group. So in the movie, it's a very, very quick, um, I know what you have, and you need my help to get out of here, and I know who the ringwraiths are, and you really need my help. And then, you know, they end up leaving with him, and he basically, you know, Samwise is, of course, distrustful and says, how do we know we can trust this guy? And... Frodo says, well, we have no choice but to trust him. It kind of makes sense on its own terms, but in the book, it's a lot more involved, a lot more developed in the actual story. There's a lot more going on in Bree and, and the Prancing Pony itself than what you see in the movie. And there's a lot of things that get um, left out that add a little extra flavor. So, for example, in the book, Mary is actually not with... Frodo, Sam, and Pippin in the main common room of the Prancing Pony Inn, he actually goes out and gets a breath of fresh air and ends up having a run-in with uh, the ring race, the Nazgul. He is luckily um, found by somebody else who kind of scares off the Nazgul and therefore he's spared a really horrible fate. But, you know, it adds a little bit of extra tension to the story and that by itself is something that would have been interesting to add because it, it heightens that idea of how terrifying the Nazgul are. But the real meat of what is left out of all this sequence is the way that Aragorn gets introduced to Frodo and how they interact and finally decide to go uh, toward Rivendell together. So <clears throat> the big thing here is... In the book, you actually have a lot of material 
that has to do with Barlam and Butterbur, the innkeeper who in the movie is basically relegated to checking them in, telling them who Strider is, and then cowering behind a wall while the Nazgul break into the Prancing Pony. That's kind of all he does. In the movie, he has, I mean, in the book, he has a much more substantive role. He knows Gandalf. He wouldn't have forgotten who Gandalf was. Uh, and he actually had a letter from Gandalf that he was supposed to send to Frodo months before, but because of his horrible memory, which they kind of hint at in the movie, um, he had totally forgotten, but he gives it to Frodo in the uh, the Prancing Pony. And in the letter, Gandalf actually references Aragorn and says that uh, Frodo needs to try to meet up with him and go with him if he does. And the way he says that you'll know him is that he go, he'll go he know this particular poem, which was written by Bilbo, actually, but it's not really quoted in the movie until The Return of the King, and even then it's only about half quoted. In the movie, they quote the second half when Elrond is reforging the sword of uh, the shards of Narsil into the new sword on Duril before he takes it to Aragorn. And that second half of the poem is uh, a fire from the ashes shall be woken, a light from the shadows shall spring, renewed shall be blade that is broken, the crownless again shall be king. Now, of course, that's why they quote that second half because it's about the sword and the kingship and all that, and that's really relevant. But the first half which I actually think is more interesting, uh, and you've probably heard this, or at least parts of it, and never, if you never read the book, you didn't really know what it was associated with, because I've actually seen it, like on cereal boxes, I've seen part of these lines, but it says, all that is gold does not glitter, not all who wander are lost, the old that is strong does not wither, deep roots are not touched by the frost. And part of that's getting at the fact that Aragorn is actually much older than he seems. He is, in the time of the book, he's 87 years old, but because of his Numenorean heritage, he is, you know, he looks, you know, maybe middle age. Um, but it's also talking about the fact that he's he's not what he appears to be. He looks rough, weather-beaten, but he's actually a very important and a very good person. So you put all this together, and it's a like I said, it's a poem that was actually written by Bilbo. You find that out when they make it to Rivendell in the books. But quite by accident, Aragorn ends up quoting some of the lines from that, and Frodo basically says, well, how did you know that was in the letter? And he said, I didn't, but those lines go with my name. That's who I am. And so that's how Frodo finally realizes, okay, I can trust you. You've now basically proven to me by, by complete accident that you are this person. Um, and of course, the the blade that is broken being renewed in the books, I've kind of touched on this on a previous in a previous video, but Aragorn is actually carrying the shards of Narsil with him. He doesn't have a separate sword and leaving Narsil at uh, Rivendell on a plaque. And in fact, in the book, it's only two shards. It's, you know, the hilt piece and then one extra piece separate. I mean, it's not a whole array of like six or seven pieces like it is in the movie. So he actually, in the book, draws the sword in front of them and basically says, you know, if I wanted the ring, I could have it now. You know, as another way of, this is before he quotes the, the lines from the poem, but he's basically making the point, if you're that distrustful of me, you're not thinking far enough ahead because I could have already taken it if I really wanted it. So, you know, there's all this dynamic going on in the story of the different tension of, you know, 
on the one hand, how can we not, how can we make it on our own? But on the other hand, this guy seems a little creepy and Samwise is very distrustful and all this other stuff. There's just a lot going on in the scene and I've only touched upon the major points that Peter Jackson left out. But it's a lot more interesting because you really get to see Frodo being in a position of having to weigh a decision and, and try to decide, you know, what do I do in this situation? It seems all hopeless, but I have to do something. So it's a lot more interesting, a lot more development goes on there. You find out a lot about Aragorn's character in a very short amount of time, and that really helps with his introduction in the book as compared to in the movie. In the movie, a lot of his character gets developed kind of over the space of several different sequences. So anyway, that's the first uh, scene that I want to talk about where Peter Jackson did okay, but he really could have done better by just sticking to the story. Now let's move on to the next one. You probably knew this one was going to have to make the list, but the Council of Elrond, of course, is severely truncated in the movie. In the book, it's basically the longest chapter. It, it goes on for quite a ways because there is a long debate in addition to going into a lot of the history of the ring. Now, Peter Jackson, of course, covers some of the history part of that in the prologue section where you get to see the Battle of the Last Alliance against Sauron where he kills Elendil and Isildur cuts off the ring and some of that's wrong, but I'll get into that in a later video probably. Uh, but the main point here is, in the books, you get a lot of actual talking back and forth between different people who are trying to suss out what's going on here, how do we know this is the ring, you know, how do we know what to do with it, and, whereas in the movie, it really cuts all that short, and you get, um, it, it's kind of awkward, almost, it's, it's okay, but if you stop it, it's one of those things, that, you know, you, there's a lot of video series out there that'll basically point out, you know, that looks fine in a movie, but if you think about it, it's really stupid, you know? And this is one of those things where if you really think about it, it doesn't make a lot of sense, even, even on its face. But, you know, for just watching it at a glance, it seems okay. So, you first start out with Elrond basically telling everybody... You're all here because I summoned you to answer the threat of Mordor. Wrong. That is not the way it happens in the book. In the book, all these people just happen to show up kind of simultaneously by chance. Boromir arrives the night before. You've got Legolas with some other elves from Mirkwood who came uh, a day or two before. You've got Gimli and Glowin from the, uh, the Lonely Mountain. Maybe a couple other dwarves with them, but at least those two... And they're all coming for their own reasons and, you know, to do different things. They all have different goals in mind. In Boromir's case, it actually was a dream that Faramir had first and then Boromir had later where he heard a voice that said a lot more than what it says in the movie. It, it says, seek the sword that was broken in Imladris it dwells. Imladris, of course, being the elven name for Rivendell. So the reason that Boromir comes there is not because anybody has any idea what the ring is, although the the voice that he hears in the dream does also mention Isildur's bane. Nobody knows what that is, at least in Minas Tirith. Or if Denethor does know it, he doesn't let on when he tells Boromir and Faramir this is what Imladris is. He knows what Imladris is. They didn't have a clue. but So he comes there completely independent of any th knowledge of the ring or anything like that. 
and then you get Legolas who was coming because Legolas and the the Mirkwood elves were in charge of keeping Gollum who had been captured by Aragorn and well Gandalf wasn't with him at the time that he captured him but he was doing it on the behest of Gandalf he brought him to the, the woodland elves for them to keep track of, and they ended up escaping. Legolas was coming to tell Elrond about that. And then Gimli and Glowen were coming because a, what we can only assume is a black rider or Nazgul, had come to the Lonely Mountain basically saying, you know, if you join, if you do this one thing for Sauron, if you find this hobbit and recover this one ring, then we'll give you rings like uh, were given to the dwarves of old. So he was kind of referring to the, the seven rings given to the dwarf lords. So all these people show up for completely different reasons. And Elrond in the book actually makes the point, you're all here seemingly by chance, but, and he doesn't say it like this, but he essentially says, but it seems like it's providence that we're all here and that it's really our job to decide what to do in this situation about this, this being the ring. And so that's the setup. And then you get a whole lot of other material about Gandalf goes into the backstory of what he discovered about the ring, what he what information he got out of Gollum. Aragorn reveals who he is to Boromir. He throws the shards of the sword onto the, the table. And there's just all sorts of things going on in the Council of Elrond in the chapter that don't show up in the movie scene. And the movie scene, it just kind of cuts it down to, we all came here because Elrond summoned us, and then Boromir just kind of goes off and acts wonky almost immediately because apparently the ring isn't a slow corrupting force. It is an immediate, oh, by the way, I am a drug that you're already addicted to. He really overplays that in the movies, I think. And that, but it, it you know, it, it within the context of Peter Jackson's narrative, it kind of works, but it turns the Council of Elrond into a completely different thing. Elrond basically says, here's why we're here. Boromir immediately screws up, and then, you know, Gandalf does his thing, which he actually does the same thing in the, in the book, but it's in a slightly different context, and Elrond and all the elves are like, don't use that language in here. Um, and, of course, Gandalf's like, well, you better get used to it if we don't solve this problem now. So, you know, in that sense, there's some similarities, but the 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 movie just kind of cuts it all short, and then you get a debate about, you know, do we use it, do we destroy it? And Elrond says, well, obviously we have to destroy it, and then Boromir disagrees, whereas in the book, there actually is something of a debate. You've got, well, we can't destroy it with what we have. Could we send it to the West? Well, the the Valar wouldn't, you know, accept this. This is our problem. We have to deal with it. Well, could we give it to Tom Bombadil? Could you know, Tom Bombadil might take it if everybody in Middle Earth asked him, but he'd probably just chuck it because he wouldn't understand the importance of it. Um, well, can we hide it forever? Elrond says, "I don't have the strength to resist Sauron." So, I mean, you, they explore all the options, and you get eventually to the point of, we really only have one choice. In the movie, it just cuts it short. Elrond says, you have only one choice. The ring must be destroyed. Okay, we haven't explored any of the other options yet. We'll just take your word for it. Well, 
in the book, you actually do get the discussion of all the other options and get explanations of why they won't work. So anyway, again, there's a lot more uh, that goes into this chapter. I can't get into it all here, but those are kind of the major highlights of you get a lot of the backstory, you get a lot of the a lot of the rationales for why things are going on, and, and you get that extra element of we're not just here because we were asked to be here because everybody knew what this one thing was about. You know, we're actually here seemingly providentially, which is a very different type of thing, and in Tolkien's world that's a very important type of thing. So anyway, that's the second scene. Now let's move on to the third one. So the third scene I want to talk about should have been in the Two Towers, but because Peter Jackson added a whole lot of extraneous material to the Two Towers and drug out the Helm's Deep battle and added in a bunch of stuff that happened with Faramir that didn't happen in the book, he ended up squeezing this into the beginning of The Return of the King, and specifically only the extended edition of The Return of the King. What I'm talking about is the scene where Gandalf and you know the other heroes from the Battle of the Helm's Deep go to um, uh, Orthanc to confront Saruman. In the theatrical version, you just kind of show up and there is no Saruman. He's trapped up in there and... Gimli says, let's have his head and be done with it. And Gandalf says, no, he can't hurt anybody anymore. We're just going to leave him. In the extended edition, which is slightly more true to the book, they actually confront Saruman, but on a slightly different pretext. In the movie, it's, Saruman, you were part of Sauron's plans. You have information. We need information. Give us information. Whereas in the book, it's more Gandalf is actually trying to help Saruman kind of rehabilitate himself and join the good side again, and he with the potential that he might also have information, but it, it it's not primarily gained gain primarily aimed at getting information from Saruman. So you get a lot of interaction between Gandalf and Saruman. You really see Saruman's character come out in this scene because you find out just how low he's fallen. It, it's really interesting in the book. In the movie, it's a lot less subtle and a lot less nuanced. It's more just a straight out, I don't like you. The only real attempt they made at kind of mirroring the book was when he appeals to Theoden and basically says, can't we take counsel together like we've done in the past? That is a hint at what I think was the best part about the entire scene in the book and what really made Christopher Lee's casting choice perfect because the entire premise of the scene in the book is that Saruman has no power left except his voice which he can use to daunt or persuade seemingly supernaturally and you you get the idea well, I mean it's not even implied it's basically made very clear in the book that whenever he does try to exert that ability he actually manages to get several of the writers of Rohan thinking, this guy is, you know, he's really on top of things, and that sounds good. You know, I mean, he really is fooling people, and it's only by a huge exertion of will that Theoden resists the same thing. Gimli actually does uh, resist quite easily, kind of like he does in the movie, but... Um, the interesting thing about it is whenever Theoden responds, and they kind of hint at this in the movie too, Theoden responds 
in kind of a hoarse voice, like he's just barely getting it out and not, you know, but he gets a little stronger as he goes. And it's in the book, it describes it as in the ears of the other writers, it seems to him, to them, that Theoden just sounds kind of like stupid and you're, you sound horrible. Part of the value of Christopher Lee in this choice was he does have a really smooth, you know, deep voice that could have been really used very well for the purpose of doing what Tolkien describes Saruman as doing in this scene. And so whenever I found out that Christopher Lee was playing Saruman, I thought, yes, that is perfect. And then they didn't really use it. I mean, they kind of did. Like I said, they kind of hinted at it in that little bit, but they just kind of have the one back and forth, whereas the book, there's actually several back and forths where Saruman kind of loses control and gets angry, but then he, okay, I'm going to try again. And he does the whole trying to be suave and persuasive and it almost works again, but then it doesn't. And then, and, but it finally ends of course with Gandalf breaking his staff. And by the end of it, everybody sees Saruman for who he is, but for half of the back and forth, you know, a lot of the writers of Rohan are sitting there thinking, he's the smart guy. Why aren't we listening to him? Because that's the power that his voice has. And you don't really get that impression as much from the movie. And, and in a certain sense, it would be almost impossible to do that. You'd have to, you'd almost have to have a third person narrator in the background to really get the idea across. And this is why reading it is so much better, but they could have at least tried a little harder to, to get some of that in there because Christopher Lee is such a perfect actor to do that. And yet they just kind of wasted the, the treasure that they had there and didn't use it to the utmost. And that, to me, is is where they really messed up in this particular scene. It's not so much the, the storyline elements that they left out or any of that. It's the fact that they really wasted a talent that they had and a voice that they had. Because the voice really is the point. I mean, the chapter is called The Voice of Saruman in the book. It's, it's really all about his voice. And yet they... Even when Christopher Lee's Saruman does try to talk, he doesn't do it as well as Christopher Lee can do it because I mean you know that there are scenes in movies where Christopher Lee really is a smooth you know operator but in this movie he they didn't really play that up and so that's why this one makes it onto the list now we're moving a little farther forward in time and we're gonna get to scene number four Okay, so this is another misplaced scene, and if I was going by the order that the movies go, it would actually be the last one. I'm talking about the scene where Aragorn confronts Sauron in the Palantir that was recovered from Orthanc. Now, this is it's just a little weird to put this scene in here because you don't actually see this happen in uh, the book. It, you kind of find out what happened after the fact because Aragorn tells Legolas and Gimli what happened. But... The main point here is, in the book, it actually occurs shortly after the Palantir is recovered. Um, after Pippin looks into the Palantir, Gandalf, of course, goes off of Pippin. They go to Minas Tirith, and uh, he gives the Palantir to Aragorn at that point. Aragorn then uses the uh, Palantir at Helm's Deep to see what's coming. Unlike in the movie where Elrond comes and tells him that there's these black ships coming... 
Aragorn finds that out by using the Palantir at Helm's Deep, and that's how he determines that he needs to go into the Paths of the Dead. Now, what's interesting about this is Aragorn uses this after, of course, being cautioned by Gandalf. Gandalf actually says, if I may counsel you in the use of your own, don't use it. And after he tells Legolas and Gimli that he did use it, Gimli basically says, you did that? Even Gandalf said you shouldn't do that. And Aragorn basically says, you forget to who you're speaking. I am the king of Gondor. This is rightfully mine. And in fact, if you read um, the Unfinished Tales section on the Palantir, and I've done a video on this, but there's a little bit of information in there that basically implies that it's only because he's the rightful owner that he's really able to take control of the Palantir. But what's interesting about it is the confrontation between Aragorn and Sauron is actually quite a bit different than in the movie. In the movie, Aragorn shows up and he basically says, here I am, and then Sauron apparently forces him to see a vision of Arwen who is apparently dying, and Aragorn goes, oh no, and drops the even star, which doesn't break in the, bo in the book. That's another story. Um, and then it's over. You just, I mean, that's it. In the book, it's much more involved, even though it only gets told after the fact. Aragorn tells Legolas and Gimli what happens, and he basically says, I confronted him, and he said that I'm pretty sure that the fact that I, the heir of Isildur, is still alive, am still alive, and he saw the sword, he knows who I am, and he probably is afraid right now. Um, so he knows what he's doing, and then he actually you know, in a contest of wills, he actually wrests control of the Palantir from Sauron so that he can use it for his own purposes, which also would be a huge blow to Sauron's confidence, for lack of a better term, because Sauron is used to being able to daunt other minds who use the Palantir. So, for example, Saruman, you know, Saruman used the Palantir and Sauron managed to corrupt him. Denethor has his own Palantir, and even though Denethor theoretically is kind of the rightful user because he's at least the steward of Gondor and he's using a Palantir that was kept in Gondor, even he gets fooled by Sauron. Aragorn comes along and he basically is like, nope, this is mine, buddy. I'm going to use it. So, you know, Sauron is now going, oh, didn't see that coming. And so you get a lot more of an idea that, you know, this entire encounter of Aragorn using the Palantir is actually very significant. Later on, Aragorn will actually say, if I had seen how quickly he was going to react in terms of throwing his entire army at Minas Tirith and almost sacking it, I might have waited a little longer. Uh, of course, it all works out in the end because it's a fantasy story and we get happy endings, but... The main point here is Aragorn is taking a calculated risk trying to determine what he needs to know to make the decision that he needs to make in order to best fight Sauron in the war because at this point that's all it is. It's, it's moved into this is straight up war. We just need to get intel, figure out what we need to do, and I'm going to do it. So there is no scene of him seeing Arwen who is not dying and there is no scene of him dropping the even star which does not break in the book. So, to me, that's a scene that, that 
part of the reason why I think it would have been so much better is because it really highlights the fact that Aragorn really is coming into his kingship at this point. And in the movie, of course, they downplay that a lot. Aragorn never really wants to be king. That's totally different than the way it happens in the, in the book. He's very much planning to become king the entire time, partially because Elrond basically told him, you can't marry Arwen unless you're the king of Arnor and Gondor. That's pretty good motivation. So you've got that progression, but even in the movie, you finally see whenever he gets on Duril from Elrond, he's finally kind of stepping up and he's becoming the king that he's meant to be. And the Palantir scene really could have furthered that and made it a little more punchy and made it, you know, he really is taking control. He's taking the role that he's meant to have. And yet they turned it into a, an excuse to throw Arwen in one more time when it, there's already too much of her anyway. So, and that'll be in the next video, by the way. That's that's coming up. So stay tuned. But now let's move on to the last episode or scene that I want to talk about. And this is, you know, if I was going to list them in order of best to worst, this is probably the one where I would say they really missed an opportunity that or Saruman would probably be the top of my list, but the next one is also pretty good, so let's check it out. This final scene that I want to talk about fortunately has very little to do with large plot points or anything like that. It's the confrontation of Eowyn and the Witch King on the field of Pelennor. The reason this scene is a missed opportunity is really in the details. If you, if you read the book and then you watch the movie, they seem very similar with a few things kind of taken out of order, but the order and a couple of details left out make all the difference. In the movie, of course, what you get is Theoden gets knocked over by the, uh, the Witch King's flying beast, whatever you want to call it. He's about to eat, or the, the beast is about to eat Theoden, basically, Eowyn steps in between and says, you know, back off. And then Witch King says, don't get between me and my prey. Eowyn stands her ground. She ends up killing the beast. Witch King gets off. They fight each other. And then he basically breaks her arm and her shield, comes up, grabs her by the throat and says, no man can kill. And then Mary finally shows up, stabs him in the back, and then Eowyn pulls off her helmet and says, I am no man, stabs him. That's not the exact sequence of events in the books, but it's at least basically the events that happen. But the crucial difference, and the reason this scene is so much more interesting in the book, is in the initial conversation they're having before she kills the beast, the Witch King says... No man may hinder me, because um, Eowyn says, you can try what you're going to try, but I will hinder you if I may. And he says, no man may hinder me. And he's referring to an old prophecy that says no man will kill him. And so, it, and it tells it kind of from Mary's perspective, because the books are essentially written from the Hobbit's perspective, but it says that Mary heard of all sounds, the sound that you would least expect to hear in that situation, laughter. Eowyn starts laughing. Now, you bear in mind, in the book, Mary doesn't even know that this is Eowyn yet. Nobody knows that this is Eowyn except maybe one or two people who are in on the secret. Eowyn, I mean, sorry, Mary doesn't know that this is Eowyn. In the movie, he knows the whole time. 
But in the book, he never knows this until right now. He hears her laughing, and she laughs, and she says, but no man, no living man am I, and she takes off her helmet, and she says, you look upon a woman, Eowyn I am. And, of course, at this point, Mary is shocked. Mary's like, what? But the more interesting part, and this is why the book is so much better, the witch king pauses. It doesn't really say much of anything other than he pauses, but you read between the lines and what you know is going through his mind is, oh, I hadn't thought about that interpretation of the prophecy. And so you, you know, it, it says, you know, when she takes the helmet off, her hair all comes down and it's obvious she's a woman. And of course she's saying, I'm a woman. And he pauses and the obvious implication is suddenly he's actually kind of afraid. He thinks he might die here. Nevertheless, of course, they go into the battle sequence and all this stuff. He breaks her arm, and then uh, Mary comes along, stabs him in the back of the knee, and then she stabs him in the face. But it, it that one little pregnant pause turns the entire scene into a completely different dynamic. Instead of becoming, oh, I've just almost killed you, and now I'm going to gloat over you by saying that no man can kill me, ha-ha, oh, wait, I'm not a woman, you're dead. It takes out half of the, the emotional value of the scene because you lose the entire, ooh, oh, you're, oh, that's, hmm, that might be a problem. And so... I mean, it's it's one of those things that it wouldn't have taken any extra time except maybe three extra seconds for that pregnant pause. It wouldn't have changed the storyline. It wouldn't have... Nothing had to change here other than reordering the sequence of events just a teeny bit and then adding in a couple of small details that would have taken ten tops seconds at most. She laughs, takes off her helmet, says, No living man am I, and he pauses. That's all you really had to add to that scene. It wouldn't have taken any extra time, hardly at all. And yet they didn't do it. I this is this is why this is possibly the top of the list, even in terms of just sheer crazy value, because it's like you were sitting on a gold mine of a scene here, and you decided to turn it into tarnished silver. It's like why did you do that? It doesn't make any sense. The scene is still good in the movie, but, I mean, when you read it in the book and you compare the two, you're like, this is obviously better. What screenwriter came up with the idea to change that? Anyway, enough of the ranting. That's uh, my five choices for biggest missed opportunities for Peter Jackson. And like I said, in the next video I do, I'm going to be doing the absolute worst atrocities that Peter Jackson committed. And... Um, That'll be really ranty, more than likely, so it might end up being a little long. This one was also kind of long because I had to go into a lot of detail on, you know, different plot issues that came into some of these scenes, but anyway, I better stop now before I get into more rants about the next video before I even get there. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed the video. Uh, I hope, hope it didn't get a little bit too crazy there at the end. Uh, if you kind of like this type of thing. If you want to learn more about differences between the movies and the books, 
Other things about Tolkien. Uh, this is just kind of a kick I'm on right now, but I'll get into other things about Silmarillion, things not even related to Middle-earth, uh, different stuff about Tolkien altogether. If you want to follow more about that, you can follow me here by subscribing. You can also uh, follow me on Twitter at JRRTLore. And please like and share the video if you enjoyed it. And until next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namadie.